What's up, guys? Welcome back to the show. This is the third installment of the Bitcoiner Book Club. And today we are covering the phenomenal article by Robert Breedlove entitled Masters and Slaves of Money. Of course, this is not a book. This is an article. But I just felt that there was so much great uh, output by writers in the Bitcoin space uh, in article format that it would be a shame to leave them all out. So uh, going forward, we will be covering books as well as articles in these discussions. Uh, and secondly, uh, this article in particular just blew me away. Uh, I listened to it four or five times. I read it twice. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Robert Breedlove's writing. And this, in fact, is my favorite piece that he's done. It's also his most recent piece. So I thought it was perfectly fitting to uh, get the crew together and dive into this one. Speaking of which, the crew today is Guy from Bitcoin Audible, Richard, uh, the creator of Hard Money Film, and Corinne, who is a relative newcomer to the space, as you will discover at the beginning of our discussion. Anyways, if there are articles or books that you'd like to see covered in the book club in the future, or if you'd actually like to join uh, the discussion, hit me up, DM me, and uh, we'll see what we can do. Anyways, that's it. Enjoy. Let's do it. And we're live. What's up, guys? How's it going? So good. Yo, yo. So, hey, John. So this is uh, episode three, or the third installment of uh, the Bitcoin book, book Club. And... Uh, what I decided to do today is to cover a recent article by uh, Robert Breedlove called Masters and Slaves of Money. And uh, obviously it's not a book, but there is so much great written content in this space. Uh, and this one in particular, I mean, I listened to Guy Swan narrated about four or five times uh, since it came out. <laughs> Still waiting on that unabridged version, I might add, Guy, but they're not unabridged, but you know, all in one version. Oh crap. That's right. I never published that. I actually did cut that. No, oh, really? Dude, I'm, I'll, I'll drop that this weekend. <laughs> behind me, though. I, t I totally forgot you're making me go from one episode to another, man. I'm, I'm so terrible. I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, anyway, so uh, this was a phenomenal uh, article. Uh, very few people uh, write like Robert Breedlove. He, I mean, he's so good at synthesizing so many different concepts bringing together so many different uh, areas of, of inquiry, inquiry, <laughs> inquiry and, uh, and articulating it well. And uh, so I thought this would be a suitable uh, topic or a suitable article, piece of work for the book club. But before we go any further, um, we've got three Bitcoiners with us today to uh, help with the discussion. Corinne, why don't we kick it off with you? Just uh, a little introdu introduction. Yeah, sure thing. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Corinne Hollinshead. I'm very brand new to the Bitcoin scene here. Uh, about a month deep of stacking with Swan. Um, not that many months deep of uh, just going down the rabbit hole and learning what, what Bitcoin is, uh, what money is, what sovereignty is. Um, and I'm fucking stoked to be here. <laughs> <laughs> Richard? Hey everyone, Richard James here representing from Australia where it's uh, morning time. Uh, yeah, my, um, my interest I, th I think is in Bitcoin comes really from the, um, the Austrian economic side of things. And uh, yeah, the main thing I've been working on recently is, is sort of expressing Bitcoin through film. Uh, I made a film called Hard Money, which looks at, at central banking and inflation 
um, and sort of knocking on the, how that leads you down the path of uh, knocking on the door to Bitcoin. Yo, Guy Swan, uh, the guy's read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. Uh, host of Bitcoin Audible, and uh, I was just a huge fan of this piece. Uh, Robert dropped this, and I was on it immediately. Um, and apparently, I'm, I failed really hard because I definitely mentioned, I think, twice in that episode that I was going to release a full uh, cut of it without the commentary or the ads or anything, and I have absolutely not done that. <laughs> Um, but check back on the feed in a day or two and uh, hopefully I'll actually get it done this time. <laughs> nice. Um, well, look, let's get right into it because there's a ton to cover in this piece. I mean, it's, it's pretty stunning how much ground he covers uh, and how, how succinctly and impactfully he, covers, impactfully he covers it. Why don't we start uh, where the article starts? And it starts describing... Uh, eras in the past and instances in the past where the co-option of the monetary instrument has led to v various forms of slavery. And um, obviously the parallel that he draws is that we're in another era where not only has the co-option of the money occurred again, um, and not only has, as he argues in the piece, has it led to uh, slavery en masse, but the most egregious instance of it in history. Uh, and that's quite the claim because most people would not see the modern world through that lens. But he articulates in this piece, I think very well, why it is almost inarguably uh, the case. So um, Guy, why don't I pass it over to you to uh, break into the top of this and then we'll, we'll get rolling from there. All right. Um... Yeah, when he when he breaks down like that, that seems like a tall order <laughs> to say that, you know, um, uh, that our current iteration of uh, monetary slavery, essentially, uh, would be the greatest just because we would think of ourselves, we would think of like our society as like uh, progressive and one that doesn't put up with that sort of thing anymore. You know, slavery is outlawed, right? Um, but uh, I always love, uh, and you know, Robert Breedlove like hits on this so well in like some of his previous works. So this this was such a great piece to kind of culminate a lot of the stuff that he's been working on in uh, money, Bitcoin, and time, and the number zero in Bitcoin about how the scarcity of time and the confiscation of time are are the two most important factors of like what a money means and like what an ethical money is. Um, and that when you, when you put this up against the, a calculation of how much time has been stolen from people to, to actually do a, ba a you know, back of the napkin sort of math and see that truly the fiat, the fiat system has stolen more time than pretty much any, any slave system in history, um, is a little bit hard to come to terms with, but you know, it's, it's accurate. You know, it's just that we have, we have essentially more life to be stolen. So they get away with it uh, without, without the explicit, um, uh, the, the explicit noticeability that the fact that it is slavery, we just kind of have this slow bleeding cost. That's like very hard to cover up. And I just thought this was such a, 
great piece to actually illustrate and make that idea cohesive and, and followable, I guess you could say. I actually think that's a critical point. And that's an interesting word you use, the noticeability, um, because it's so easy with, you know, historical perspective in hindsight to look back and say, how come people didn't see this? How come they didn't see how much of an abuse, uh, you know, coming into a market in Africa with a, a counterfeit form of money and using that to ultimately, and we have to understand this process took time, ultimately enslave those people. Um, because it looks, in history, we look back in such simplistic terms. We say, how come they didn't notice that? It was egregious. These guys came, they had a bunch of money, and they enslaved an entire population of people. I think we'll look back on our time now, despite the modernity, the seeming modernity that we have, and it will be very easy to pinpoint a number of different metrics that in the framework of history, taken together, will be very clear, a very clear indication of the effects of the distortion, the coercion, and the co-option uh, and corruption of our money, i.e., you know, look at the uh, wealth inequality today, look at the mental health issues today, look how, uh, you know, how much anguish and depression and, you know, all these uh, drug abuse, substance abuse, alcoholism there is in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think it's not immediately clear that those things are related to the money, but the environment that the co-option of the money creates directly in, in my mind, and I think hist history will bear this out, creates those circumstances and it creates for an exceedingly unhealthy society. And we'll look back on it and say, how, how come it wasn't more obvious to the people at the time? But that's, you know, that's, the, uh, that's the status quo bias of history. It's always so hard to look outside the moment that you're in. Corinne, I see you nodding. Dude, so much I'm nodding over here. Like I'm, I'm just understanding the, the uh, incentive structure behind fiat, right? Like I'm new here. So uh, fiat incentivizes uh, distorting truth and wickedness like so clearly now for me. And um, you know, inflation incentivizes deception um, with, uh, within um, every, every part of our culture, I guess. So I think about it and I think like fiat is, is definitely responsible for the rise in um, the societal problems we have with anxiety and depression, right? Like anxiety stems from a, a point of living in the future and the future that we see is very scary. We don't know where it's going. We don't have any stability. So like that whole idea for me, it makes a lot of sense. So like the idea that we have a sound money available now that we can um, transfer wealth to gives us a lot of hope, I think, for, for a new future, which I, which like really spoke to me a lot, you know? Totally. <clears throat> Richard, you got anything? Yeah, I agree with, with that. Absolutely. And I think, um, I think the other interesting thing about this article is the, the timing of it and, and when it was released, um, you know, at a time when we're having this, this social unrest, a, a lot of it very racially charged and, and you're hearing talk of, of, you know, just words like masters and slaves, um, have a certain connotation. They're very controversial. Like you, you gotta be careful about the way you, you use them. Um, and that's why I think Robert does such a good job of, of entering the fray here in, into what could be a dangerous um, topic. And, and he just deals with it very deftly. And he makes a point that 
we've sort of all been screaming from the sidelines, which is that um, you know the, the the money is the is at at cause of a lot a lot of these these problems that we've seen this year. Uh, so he just does a very good job of um, of extrapolating that. Yeah, I, I think it's so important in this day and age where there's there's so many different um, because of this environment, because of this environment that um, the abuse of money has created, there's so many uh, symptoms uh, of, of the core issue. And, you know, obviously we're focusing largely as a society in the mainstream media, et cetera, on a lot of those symptoms, whether they be racial or whether they be, you know, gender issues or whether they be, you know, all, all sorts of things that we're focusing on the symptoms pretty much exclusively. And uh, I, I think it's such, so important, and again, Robert does such a good job in this piece, to drive home the fact, and I think an indisputable one, that if the mechanism that a, an individual in a society uses to store their time is, if that individual has to give their time, to sacrifice their time, to use Robert's terminology, to receive it, but another group of people are able to create it at zero cost, then the inevitable outcome, the inevitable outcome is slavery. And for everyone today living in these systems to recognize that if you are living in a fiat system under a central banking monetary system, which pretty much, you know, all this, the quote unquote civilized world is today, that you are under a form of slavery, right? You, you, you are basically a slave of a certain kind. Now we can obviously get into looking at the distinctions between modern slavery and, and older slavery, but at the same time, what's the point? The, the, the principle is that you are being stolen from without your consent and you are being forced into a system of work and sacrifice and time commitment and all the things that come with that because you've been placed without your, you know, without your, um, uh, not without your knowledge, but without your, um, <laughs> you didn't opt into this system. Uh, and this is, yes, without your consent. Thank you, Guy. Um, and this is where you are now. And I think, uh, you know, that is such an important point. Um, and I think that's probably why Robert starts a piece with that. And I'm, I just want to read one of the passages that he, uh, he uses at the beginning. And he says, histories of human action related to agribeads and panos, and these are two forms of money that were co-opted in the past, uh, hold important lessons for societies suffering under central banking. Those who can monopolize money production become de facto currency counterfeiting operations that steal human labor in perpetuity. When free market forces are manipulated, producers gain an asymmetric ability to set prices without regard to customer preferences, thereby converting economic democracies into, di into dictatorships and freedom into tyranny. For money, this implies monopolists can acquire human time, AKA labor, in the marketplace at an unfair price. Said differently, money monopolists can steal human time, a malevolent power that effectively makes them slave masters. And then, as was referenced already, he goes on to quantify um, the kind of the scale of slavery that occurred in the um, transatlantic slave trade and the slavery that's occurring now. I think just in the, in the United States under the central banking uh, system there. And I'm just going to say, I'm, I'm going to quote this because I think there are important numbers, but uh, he says, quantifying this atrocity from an economic perspective, not counting those born into slavery, assuming the average slave could labor 5,000 hours each year for 40 years, 
The staggering time, total time stolen amounts to over 2.5 trillion hours or 6.8 billion hours stolen per year for 365 years. And then uh, with, regard, with regards to today, uh, time stolen by the Fed since 1981 is 341% more per year than the transatlantic slave trade with 23.4 billion hours stolen annually. The Fed could in theory build, and then he goes on to uh, contextualize it, comparing it to uh, the building of the Great Pyramids uh, through slavery in the past. But, you know, these numbers, this is what I think makes it so powerful and that these are really, really hard to ignore, uh, the numbers that he uses with regards to slavery. So I don't know if any of you guys had commentary on that particular point before we move on, but I, I just think it's, you know, it's so crucially important for people to get in this day and age. Yeah, I, I just have a quick point on that. Um, specifically, the, the time aspect is most people are having to use more and more of their time in order to, you know, get this fiat to pay their bills and such. And so a lot of people don't even have the luxury of, of thinking about this, right? Like I didn't, I wasn't thinking about this for the longest time. You know, I've been, I've been grinding and working, you know, 40 plus hours a week, starting a business. Like I didn't even like think about thinking about what this means until very recently. And it, it's, it's a huge number. It's mind blowing. I have no idea how even to like wrap my head around 341% now versus then, like, that's insane. Um, so I guess, yeah, I guess I just wanted to touch on, like, who even has time to, like, think about that, because yeah. all we're doing is working now, man. It's, like, we're crazy. It's, it's funny on that, like, it emphasizes two points. Um, one, when you're talking about, like, the concept that we specifically don't have the time to figure it out that that we're we're we've we're having so much time stolen that we even lose the ability to learn outside of that which is absolutely immediately necessary like 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 we lose the ability to go outside of just that narrow thing like we're we're back to that like base survival we just have to do what gets us to tomorrow and that's it and we have no time to think or plan or find meaning in our life like we're just chasing zero and uh and to at the same time what were the what were the two numbers john it, it was a 341 percent difference but it was like 23 point something trillion yeah, 23.4 uh by the fed since 1981 and okay since uh, 1981 yeah mm -hmm. that's Good uh God. stolen annually and uh the transatlantic slave trade was uh, 6.8 billion hours per year for 365 years and what like like it has the it, that's, that's kind of what makes it a feedback loop to worsen itself is because you're stealing the very resource we need to defend ourselves from it you know it's it's, it's just like when you go back to like when he's talking about the transatlantic uh slave trade and agri beads and how, you know, the English came in and suddenly they could mass produce these beads and they saw, holy crap, look at, look at this cheap, easy money that we can make. Whereas for uh, the tribes and the civilizations on the coast, um, it, was a, it was a scarce and hard money for their society. Is that 
it had a double, it had a double effect in the, in the sense that, Oh, they, they think that they're getting rich. They see like, Holy crap, look at all these agri beads. Look at all this massive amount of money. But at the exact same time, they're getting so much much poorer that they're desperate for, to sell something. They get, they get desperate and then they start selling themselves. They start selling the, you know, prisoners from the latest, you know, tribal, uh, a conflict or whatever it is to the, to the English. Like it, it, the very thing that the English are coming to confiscate all, all the wealth, um, makes them so poor that they're desperate to do it even more the next time. They, they have less time to actually accumulate wealth and therefore it's more important that they sell somebody or something to the English the next time they come because they think that the beads are wealth, but the English have completely destroyed it. Um, and that conflation with money and wealth, when money becomes soft, when money becomes a tool of authority rather than a hard provable asset, um, every story of it in history is one of just destruction and and slavery. Um, And it's just such a, such a great and clear way to describe the relationship. And and when it's really put like that, it's, it's hard to deny it. You know, like there's, there's not really a better way. Like there's not a more accurate way to put it because that's just what it is. I love how he throws in there so it's somewhere towards the end of the article after he's made these, these points about uh, comparing the, the theft of time to the pyramids and to, to the slave trade and how, you know, central banking as an institution has overtaken that just in the last, just since 1981, uh, if you use the inflation of, of their money supply. Oh, and then he says, oh, and by the way, this is on top of um, the resources that are taken directly through taxation, um, which is also a form of, um, of confiscation. Um, and then the other, the other thing is, um, you know, capital gains tax, where if you do try and hold your wealth in, a, in an alternative asset, uh, they're going to make a claim on that as well. Um, so it's this, um, you know, the, the monopoly on violence um, means that there's really no, no escape, uh, whichever way you turn. Yeah, I mean, it's really a full court press on making sure that you don't have the time represented in your, you know, your time now and your time stored to extricate yourself in any meaningful way from, from the system that's been constructed, you know, for, for the vast majority of people. And, you know, I think it's also an interesting point to consider that it's not like the English or um, was it the Portuguese in the case of the Panos, um, that they just showed up and were like, Hey, we got all these beads. Can we buy like a million of you people now? Like, no, it, 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 had, it was a slow thing over time that people basically, I don't want to say they enslaved themselves, but they, you know, the, the fact that this imbalance, this kind of false imbalance or this unfair imbalance was created just meant that they got further in debt to the point where they had to basically, as Guy was saying, kind of put up their life as collateral or as a, a means to repay this debt. And I'll, I'll grant that today it's more obfuscated through layers of financial, you know, chicaner, financial chicanery. But, you know, if you, if you have a mortgage on your house and you have, you know, you borrow money for your car and all that kind of stuff, you owe a debt of time 
to those institutions. Now, whether that is you sending a debt of time in the form of a payment or you, or you actually, and this is the case in most cases, you've actually got to devote your time. to So you got to give your time away to somewhere else in order to pay back that debt of time that you have uh, to that institution. And the crazy thing about today is because of the way that, you know, the, this, the system has become so financialized, you know, an investor in Japan or, you know, Hungary or London might own the, the claim on the time of someone in, you know, California, just because of this, the way that the system of uh, the fiat money and debt works. And so, yes, it's more obfuscated and that's why it's a little bit more difficult to discern, but, you know, I struggle to see how it's any less egregious. I mean, other than the fact that people aren't, uh, you know, being stuffed into boats. I mean, the, the theft, like the dollar value of the theft or the time value of the theft, as we've already articulated, is more. I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking real quick here about like, say, you know, I have a 30-year mortgage, right? I have a 30-year payment plan for my student loans. Um, when I took those loans out to 30 years in the future, like what is money worth 30 years in the future versus what was money worth when I, when I took it out too? So I feel like that's just snowballing stealing time and, and money from you, right? Like, do you, do you know where I'm going with that? Does that I, make sense? I, th I think so. I'm getting, well, that's, I'm just, a, uh, that's part of the way that, yeah, it's some sort of echo. Um, but that's one of the ways that it's like so, uh, it's so incentivized is that if, if they're going to destroy the value of money, it's actually better to go into debt than it is to save. So it's better to simply consume than it is to produce and have value. Um, so that's how you get the degradation of, uh, of production and capital all across society because the people who are most profitable or are those who play the game, uh, in, in such a way that they're taking advantage of the loss of value through the bleeding of the money. Um, and they become, they become profitable, not because they actually produce excess like surplus value, which is what should be the only thing that turns a profit in, in the economy, because otherwise the economy is not going to be sustainable, but that they can actually destroy resources but make a profit because they hold the debt long enough. They have it, they have it on a period that's long enough that the, it will simply drain it from the savings of whoever produced the goods that they consumed. And that's how you get, like we have zombie companies, we have multi-billion dollar companies that haven't turned a profit in 10 years. They take on debts and buy back their stocks so that the value goes up. They're literally consuming resources and if they're not turning a profit, it literally means they're destroying stuff. They're destroying actual value and they're locking us all in while we prop them up and everything gets harder and harder and we have less and less time to actually do anything or figure out what the hell is going on because we're keeping these things alive while they burn through capital. Agree. <laughs> yeah, the debt, the debt's an interesting one because it... Um, you know, the incentive structure that they set up encourages people to go into debt. So, so as an individual, that, that, you know, it becomes more attractive to, to be in debt versus, um, versus holding money. Um, so it, that's why it's sometimes hard to, uh, 
you know, to, to make a generalization about the impact because really what you're, if you're looking at it in purely financial terms, you're looking at um, debtors versus creditors. Um, and it's really, you know, this system incentivizes is the debtors. The problem is that even as an individual, if you make the decision to go into debt, which is, a, which is um, the better decision in the current structure, um, you're still at a disadvantage to those people who sit above you in that pyramid scheme. Um, and, and Robert does a really good job of explaining this. So whatever, you know, the, the, obviously the worst um, thing you can do is go into credit card debt because of the rate you'll get on that. Um, you know, a long-term mortgage will, will be better. Uh, plus you're also offsetting that with the capital growth, hopefully, um, or, or the nominal growth in value of your home. But you're never going to be able to access debt at the same rates as um, the people at the very top of that pyramid who are getting that that freshly printed money when it comes straight from the central bank. So even if you're on the right side of that debt versus savings equation, um, you're still losing ground uh, to those large institutions, the banks, the big companies that are, that are getting credit for be- better than free, basically. Yeah. You know, uh, just to move along on the piece a little bit here, another, you know, in typical breed love fashion, he goes deep, right? And so we, we've got the, the, you know, he, he talks about um, money being uh, is human time, time emblematized. So that's kind of what we've been discussing and, and the, the, the nature and the, the impact of the abuse when that is co-opted. Um, but he also discusses how money is, you know, an essential mechanism for human expression. And uh, I'm just going to, to get this part of the discussion kicked off, I want to read um, a passage that he, he included in the piece, um, and it goes like this. More accurately, money, along with its precursors, action and speech, is, quote, the root of all sovereignty, the authority to act in the world as one sees fit. Sovereignty, a word etymologically associated with monarchy, money, and royalty, refers to the locus of supreme power in the sphere of human action. According to natural law, sovereignty inheres within the individual, as each person must consciously decide what actions to take, despite any exogenous influences they may face. An inner sanctum of sovereignty's generative source lives within each of us, an inviolable principle of reason known as the logos, an an interface layer between the, the primary domains of experience, order and chaos. The logos is the defining feature of humanity. Our ability to tell and believe stories is what distinguishes man from animal. Seen this way, money is a direct derivation of action and speech, all three of which are essential media for self-sovereign expression. So, you know, it, it obviously goes deeper than just something we pass around to reflect the sacrifices of time that we've made, but it's instrumental into how we interact with reality and, and to, you know, to use the terms there, create order from chaos and on an individual level and on a, on a, you know, collective social level. And, um, you know, that was, I had, I had thought about those concepts before, but never really in, in terms of money, you know, I was receptive to the idea of money being a form of speech, you know, and how it kind of synthesizes, uh, and reflects uh, or allows you to express yourself in a certain fundamental way. But, you know, Rob really brought it together uh, using this analogy. And so, 
wondering what you guys thought of that passage. I, yeah, I think this is one of the reasons why Robert's such a good, a good writer and, and representative of, of Bitcoin. I think he's sort of the most, you know, for example, I love someone like Parker Lewis's writing, but I think Robert is, is sort of the most literate in the way that he draws um, from all sorts of other, other spheres. And, you know, he, he, just after that passage you read, um, John, you know, he quotes Jordan Peterson, who's obviously had a big influence on him. And I, and I also um, have spent a lot of time listening to. And so it's this idea of, well, and Robert digs into this here, like what, like this idea of what is truth um, and trying to make this point that, that it, it can be a slippery concept to pin down, but it's hard to find a better definition than simply something that, that, that helps us survive or something that allows us to make order out of chaos or basically like an anti-entropy sort of, sort of thing. And that um, money actually plays an important role in that. Like I reckon there's a really good argument to be made that the bedrock of human civilization is two things. One of them is language uh, which I don't think anyone would disagree with, but the other is is potentially money. Uh, I think there's a really good case to be made for the fact that money, as an as an organising principle, um, is really fundamental to human civilization because of its truth seeking, the truth seeking process that it sets sets into fashion. It's like this this iterative process that allows the free market to hone in on truth um, through each individual person you know, expressing their wishes uh, without being interfered with. It's just a system of voluntary exchange. So yeah, it is a fundamental um, aspect of, of speech, but just of, yeah, of human freedom or of, of this hu human sovereignty, human logos. Yeah. And I think there was a, there was a spot in there when he was kind of delving into um, uh, free speech and self-sovereignty, and I think um, the idea that um, money is sort of uh, a language of value, right? So money in and, in and of itself um, could be interpreted as a language. Um, so I'm just like trying to kind of wrap my head around that and like, so what, uh, if, you're, if you're tying free speech to money, and then that's kind of being messed with by the structures and the, the powers that be like, what exactly does that mean? Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Yeah. yeah. I think that's, you know, that's one of the, the points uh, that Richard was just kind of touching on. And that is that, you know, Robert says in the piece that the market is the place where truth is discerned via the, you know, the, the attempts by entrepreneurs to meet and satisfy market demand and to compete with one another to do that, most effectively or most fully. And, you know, the degree mm -hmm. to which they do that is kind of their digging down towards finding a truth, a truth as represented by the synthesis of what's provided and the demand that it attracts in the market. And the money is the, are the points in the market for dictating who's doing that the best. And people mm -hmm. vote with those points and the people that do it the best gain those points. And so, and that's the money, of course. And when you, when you distort that, that mechanism, that market rewarding mechanism for determining truth in, in this, you know, as he, as he says it, um, then you're going to get distortions in the truth itself, right? Because it won't accurately reflect the, the intentions and the expressions 
uh, and the demands and the inquiry of the market participants. I think that's what he's trying to get at there. Yeah, and the idea of money is speech. Um, back to kind of along the lines of what Richard said, um, and I think this is totally true. In fact, I don't think it's like a like maybe true. Um, I think it absolutely is that language is the source of uh, social communication and society, but money is the source of economic society is economic communication. And uh, without that, we don't have the, like we truly don't have civilization in the way that we have it today. Um, like social, social interaction only scales. Like that's, that's the, I think he actually mentions it in this piece is Dunbar's number. Um, uh, how like you can only have a social group that can relate to each other and uh, understand and account for relationships up to a certain magnitude up to, you know, that hundred to 200 uh, people range. Um, and the, the ability to communicate about, to communicate values across that, um, outside of that, that group is what, is what allowed us to break out of those small isolated societies and become civilization as we know it. Um, and Zabo's shelling out really goes into, uh, that really well. Actually, it would, it would probably be, uh, money, blockchains and social scalability. Actually, I think really hits that a lot harder, but the idea of money is speech. Um, one, of the, one of the things that he points out in this that I thought was just really cool was that to define a word, um, we can only ever define it with other words. Like it's, it's only with the other elements of the language that we can define our language. Um, and, and because of that, it's all like deeply interconnected and reliant on each other. And just like if you start manipulating the, the meaning of words, you, you completely manipulate the communication. You completely destroy our ability to identify with each other or, um, you know, share that which is meaningful or important to us. And in the exact same way, no price is meaningful except in comparison to other prices that like the, my very valuation of doing an hours or two hours worth of work or why I'm doing it or what I am doing is because I made the explicit decision not to do something else. And I made, I had that price to say, no, this is not worth my time. I put my blood and my sweat into this and I'm not doing it for this price because I know what that price means to me. I know, I know what my, what of my life it costs to produce or learn this thing. And I will not sell it for less than it's worth. That is how I determine my values. And, and in doing so, that's the only, that's the basis for finding meaning without, without the ability to measure value of my time of why I did something of what explicitly I did and why I learned something how the hell am I supposed to determine the meaning of it? And to manipulate that value, to make it, to, to be able to, to, to destroy my ability to say exactly how much my hour was worth or to, to improperly compare it to somebody else's hour or determination of value is to like manipulate, is to be, is similar to manipulating the words that go into a definition 
so that you change the meaning of the very of the other word um and it just completely destroys everything and when you start to uh like corinne said actually early on um was that you know it it has effects across so much of society um something i like to say is that you know there's no you can't explicitly put money at the root of all of our problems you can't just say that just because like money is like being manipulated that this is where all of our problems come from but at the exact same time none of our problems can be divorced from the corruption and manipulation of the money uh, in the same way that you could never you could never detach a social problem from the fact that somebody has changed what the words mean and has created conflict where there shouldn't be any um, and money as speech is just a fascinating concept that I love to dig into and Robert kills it in this one. Yeah. And on that point, on the kind of money as speech point, I'm going to draw out another um, bit from the piece uh, because he touches on that, of course. And I think it's uh, worth repeating, but he says, logos is a Greek word that means ratio or word the principle at the core of interpersonal communications, which are largely conducted via words and prices in brackets, which are exchange ratios expressed in monetary terms. So Guy, what you were just referring to, uh, both words and prices are categorical comparatives, protocols for encapsulating, contrasting, and communicating different aspects of reality. Herein lives the power of the divine logos to render order from chaos, in language, consider how all words only have meaning relative to one another. All definitions are comprised of other words. In markets, the intersection of objective supply and subjective demand is the price, a dynamic figure reflecting the consensus of the collective logos on any particular goods exchange ratio to any other good, for simplicity expressed in the common language of economic numeracy, money. For money, governments corrupt the pricing mode of comparative expression by constantly violating the supply of money via inflation, while simultaneously compelling its demand via legal tender and tax collection laws. Distorting natural price discovery, a manipulation of the collective logos, is equivalent to perverting the vox populi, the voice of the people. Free expression in all forms is antecedent to proper moral action. So, of course... This is what Corinne and Guy, you know, what you were just referring to. And I think that last uh, point is, is very important because this kind of illustrates how corrupting the money stifles and distorts free expression. And that last, sent that last sentence where he says free expression in all forms is antecedent to proper moral action, I think is a great segue into the next part of the piece where he makes the case that, you know, not only is there a, you know, a theft going on and not only are we as a result of that theft not able to properly articulate express and communicate you know our values and our and, and other aspects of, of ourselves but that because of that distortion it's actually we're, we're and and because we're not able to express ourselves there's a we're kind of inhibited from uh as a society and as individuals acting um in moral action. So that was a, that was a bit jumbled up, but basically that is that, 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 that co-option of the money is making it so people can't become more, more easily become morally compromised. I don't want to say that it's like imperative or that, 
perhaps it's impossible, but that it's a, it's a dramatically corrupting force on the morality of the people that are forced to use this as a form of expressing themselves. I don't know if that, any of that came out right, but you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think that, yeah, if you look at, you know, what are we trying to get at here? It's, you know, we're, we're, we're putting forward this idea of exchange being a driving force behind civilization and that, and you know, money always makes up one half of an exchange, but, but an exchange doesn't have to, or the best way to, to define it is not that it's physical goods changing hands. It's, it's always a contract. Uh, like that's the defining feature of an exchange and a contract has to be expressed in words, whether that's, um, you know, formally written down in some business contract or whether it's just an informal, you know, the, the example that Nick Sabo uses often is, is a vending machine is an, is an example of a very simple contract. Um, yeah. So that has to be expressed in words. And one half of the contract is always money um, because in a complex economy, you're using money as that intermediate um, method of exchange. And so effectively what is happening is, is through a legal tender law, um, it's telling the participants in the, in the contract, you have to uh, use a certain expression here. You have to put dollars into this contract. You're not allowed to express yourself freely um, and use gold or Bitcoin or, or some other denomination. Um, so that I think is, is really the way they're restricting speech in, in that they're dictating what you've got to express in this contract and bring it back to, to truth and morality. If, if you're shut off from, from the true expression or the, that, that you would like to, to express in this contract, that then forces you to seek an alternative route to, to getting what you want. Uh, so so the, the most truthful method and, and so thereby the most moral method, um, given that we're assuming that, that the, the, the money expressed by legal tender is being corrupted, you've been shut off from, from the most truth-seeking moral method. So you're forced to take an indirect, perhaps um, immoral method of, of getting what you want. So yeah, the way he leads on to say that, that that places economic participants in this difficult situation where it almost puts the temptation in front of them um, to, to defraud the, the other part of the exchange. Yeah, the, the example he uses is very simple, but I think a very good one to illustrate the point. <clears throat> and that is that the, the manipulation of the money and the inflationary pressure um, and the price pressure that uh, inflating the money has gives, gives the, a hypothetical uh, winemaker. And I think this was actually the case, I believe, uh, in some places in history. I'm not exactly sure where or when. But he says, you know, with, you have a couple of options. You can dilute your wine with water, you can shrink it, or you can charge more. And people are, you know, people are going to be sensitive to charging more. They're going to notice a shrink, but if you dilute it, then you're able to make up the, the pressure that was put on you because your margins are being squeezed. But again, that in, in that decision to do that and to keep pace with the way prices are moving, you're faced with a moral quandary. And put with enough pressure... You know, in, in markets, a lot of people, in order to survive, in order to stay in business, um, you know, they will acquiesce to those pressures in order to, to, to stay alive. And this is a, an aspect of um, the, 
the moral pressure, I guess, let's say that manipulating the money has on, on market participants. And I mean, I guess, you know, they, they have to, right. They kind of have to go with that. People have mouths to feed and homes and roofs to put over heads. So that's just a, it's a really unfortunate situation that people find themselves in. Cause I don't think generally people want to screw, you know, their neighbor or their customer in that fashion. Um, and like, and then I think about the people who have access to supplies closer to the top of that pyramid who can get them for cheaper and still charge that rate and, and gain even more money. And, um, I, I guess that's like where I am right now in my, in my journeys and my understanding of what's going on here. Um, and it's just blowing my mind that this is, this is uh, the situation that we actually have at hand right now. Right? Like it's, yeah. it's really blowing my mind. I think um, another example of this is um, in shrinkflation, right? It's a, maybe a lesser example, but, or you could, you, you know, a lot is made in the Bitcoin space, especially since Safe's book, uh, The Bitcoin Standard, which we covered last time, um, fiat culture, fiat food, fiat this, fiat that. And it's, mm -hmm. it's speaking to the influences of fiat money on all these different things. And you could take, you know, fiat food's a great example. What do food producers do when faced with the pressures that, the, the, that a manipulated money system put on them, the market pressures that the manipulated money system puts on them? Well, they've got to shrink their product. They've got to put all sorts of crap in it. They've got to fill it up with soy and artificial flavors and artificial chemicals. And we're seeing the manifestations of that in people's health, in people's relationship to food, in, you know, in all this kind of stuff. So mm -hmm. it's very alive and well today. I mean, the wine example, I think, in the piece was – um, was a, you know, a, a bygone era, but this is happening sure. on a daily basis in a million, you know, billions of different interactions and, and pretty much every product on the market. And some are less of a moral decision than others. You might just keep looking for the cheapest inputs, but at some point, if the, you know, when the pressure becomes strong enough, you're going to bump up against that decision and you're going to say, well, and I, this is not a commentary on aspartame. I don't know the, the actual health like implications of aspartame, but like you come up and say, well, should I use sugar or should I throw this artificial shit in it? Well, there might, I don't know what the artificial stuff does to the body. I don't know what it does for the brain. I don't know if it's detrimental or whatever, but it's way cheaper. Tastes the same. Yeah. Throw it in. That's, we got to do it. Otherwise, you know, we can't compete. And this is the type of, of pressure that, uh, and this is the type of moral corruption that occurs on uh, mass now as a result of, uh, of the pressure that's put on uh, market participants because of what's, be what's happening with the money. Yeah, and it's, it's very similar to, uh, like, like you begin to see it when you start to make that analogy to changing the definition of like words in a language or whatever so that they don't mean the same things for different people. Um, you realize exactly like what's happening is that it's so in conflict where there should not be um, that it's putting the business owner in competition with their customer that they should be fighting or trying to hide the truth from their customer because they are the ones that are forced to, to give the bad news about the new definition of money. They are, they are having to, to spread the, the false knowledge or, or be the, the revealers of false knowledge 
to to their customers in in the economic sense you know it would be like you know if we start manipulating the the definition of words i could say i love you uh, i love you john and but if to you love now means hate you're going to be really really pissed at me whereas normally you might just be like kind of uncomfortable about it um, <laughs> um but in in the in the in the same way like like we're we're changing the definition of that interaction and whereas in a deflationary environment where literally to to have the the value of the money increase over time is it means that we're splitting the extra productivity that because we made society wealthier we split it evenly across everybody who helped out everybody who produced a surplus gets to split the surplus and and in the exact reverse, we're trying to figure out how to cut, cut ourselves out of paying the price of the theft when we're talking about inflation, of in, in shrinkflation. You're trying to degrade the wine, the wine quality. And we're, at a, we're in a fight to make sure that we're not the ones that get screwed. And it, it, it completely destroys the morality because it makes even like, I know it, but the smart decision is to go into debt right now. The smart decision is for me to buy a house under the, under the explicit knowledge, like trying to account for inflation, that I can get it for an interest rate that will devalue the money faster than, uh, than, I, than I'll actually have to pay it back. So I'm fully expecting to buy a house to consume a full house without paying back its full value. Because that's the, I'm trying to not lose the value of my money. Like, but that is technically, that's putting me at odds with benefiting society. You know, I'm playing, I'm playing a game to not lose my money. And I'm betting on the fact that everybody else is going to get screwed. Um, but that's the smart decision to basically know that I'm not going to be able to repay the value that I have consumed. Um, and it's, it's messy. It's evil. Yeah, you're you're playing the game, uh, you know, with the incentive structure that you're dealt right now, right? That's yeah. the deal. That's that's what I got. That's what I have access. That's that's what I've been given. Like, how else do I? What do I just suck at it and just get robbed? Like, you, no. you know, like it's one or the other. Either get robbed or try to keep myself from being robbed. So, what do I do? Yeah, and that's it's another. Oh, you sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead, Richard. No, I just said I totally agree with with what Guy said, and that's also another. Uh, you can pinpoint that as another source of widening inequality is that you know your your income level depends, uh, or your income level basically dictates the the amount um, of your wealth that you hold as cash, as currency versus um, other assets. So, someone on a low income. Um, is disproportionately affected by this process because first of all, they've got to spend a higher percentage of their income on these goods that, that are rising in price and suffering the effects of shrinkflation. Um, whereas, you know, the, the higher your income and the higher your net wealth, the more, the more able you are to store a portion of that wealth in, in assets and take advantage of the dynamic that the guy was, um, was alluding to. Plus the fact that, 
you know, if you need a certain level of wealth to, to access those kind of debt instruments. Like if you're on a, if you've got a bad credit history, if you're on a low income, if you're struggling to keep down a job, you can't um, get a loan to, to, to buy a house. Um, so that precludes you from taking advantage of that dynamic. And so you see, um, you see this gap widen from that point. Yeah. And, you know, among other things that this environment creates and got and guy, your, your point was kind of, uh, it's what made me think of this, but it puts people so much more at odds with one another, right? Because you, you know, you, everyone's kind of fighting so much harder to, uh, you know, to, to just take advantage and to, to keep up. Right. And it puts so, so much more kind of angst and anxiety and tension in the market where it needn't naturally be, and it wouldn't naturally be, but because of this system, it is there. And again, going back to, you know, kind of how we opened the, the discussion today, um, we're seeing the manifestations of that added tension, not just in the growing wealth gap, which obviously is, is, uh, contributes very much to it, but, you know, this, this underlying kind of perversion of the incentives that makes everybody more, um, you know, more combative or more adversarial than cooperative. And we're seeing manifestations of that pretty much everywhere you look today. And in the piece, Rob um, quotes Buddha, actually. And uh, he says, like speech, money lacks any intrinsic morality of its own. However, its economic character does influence moral standards. As Buddha taught us, money is the worst discovery of human life, but it is the most trusted material to test human nature. Honest money encourages righteous action and dishonest money induces moral hazard. Inflation resistant money then is an antidote to an afflicted social morality. In this critically important sense, Bitcoin, the, the only money with a 0% terminal inflation rate is a cure for many of the moral cancers riddling our world. So uh, that was my smooth segue into breaking into how Bitcoin is uh, a solution to this and how Bitcoin is different from the money that Rob spent the majority of the first part of the piece discussing. Anyone want to jump in? It immunizes against the ability to unfairly manipulate the supply. Um, and, and in doing so, it allows society to determine the price of money and then our ability, like a language where the definition of the words are, are meaningful and they don't change and, and we can actually establish relationships and not be, you know, in constant conflict with each other over speaking a different language. Um, uh, and losing the meaning of what we're trying to do and what we're trying to accomplish um, actually we can actually find that meaning. We can actually have correct valuations. We actually would align our decisions with what benefits each other, which what, with what creates a surplus and creates extra capital and is good for society and sustainable for society rather than chasing what is um, what is destructive, but trying not to be destroyed and making sure it's the other guy that gets the, gets the bag. Um, and to have like, like that's the most, it's, it's a codification of the Austrian idea that 
that meaning and value is supposed to be determined naturally. Um, and uh, I think it's actually in this piece, he quotes Murray Rothbard that an action cannot be moral if it's not voluntary. Um, and I think in the same sense, a value is not real unless it's voluntarily decided. A cost is not real unless it's voluntarily paid. Um, otherwise, you're just measuring the fear, the uncertainty, or the, the, the degree of evil of that which is manipulating it. And Bitcoin, fingers crossed, is that tool that's going to make all of the shit not work for them anymore. You know, like it's, it's literally going to just pull the rug out from under them and change the nature of the game. Uh, and, and we get to actually hold and divest from this horrible shit storm of a financial system that is causing so many problems at so many levels. And, and I think it realigns our thinking you know, like, like we talked about this on uh, your show numerous times about the, the renaissance and, and aligning the productivity, aligning like how you think about things, aligning how we value our future versus our present. Like all of this stuff is so deeply tied to our money. And the hope that we can actually fix that shit, like, good God, like, thank, like, thank Satoshi and... I will gladly be his disciple because what the <laughs> hell will we do without this? I don't, I don't even know. I feel that. Um, <laughs> fuck, man, like uh, this idea of another renaissance, uh, like a Bitcoin renaissance or um, whatever it's described as, is like my shit. Like I feel like <laughs> at our center, man, we are creative beings and we are stifled every day with this grind and like to see what can flourish when people actually have the time and the capability and um, get a value in return for you know creating what 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 is sparked in them i like man i am i am hoping for it and i am praying to satoshi like I want to understand this as best as I can in order to like spread this shit as far and wide as I can, because I think it is so important. Like my shit's on fire. <laughs> like I'm not even kidding. Like I am not exaggerating like a billion percent. This is what I'm pumped about. Yeah, we get it. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> Don't listen to my show. Don't listen to my show. It's getting, I get ridiculous. I do listen to your show already, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I think to yeah to extrapolate forward into the future about um, with Bitcoin, I like to look. I guess try and look backwards for, for parallels. So and, and so just just expanding on on this idea of, of honest money, it also works. Right, in an individual on a social level, you also see it, the dynamic play out at a global level. So. And, you know, you set, you basically set countries against each other in what becomes sort of a race to the bottom. Like if you, so if you think about, um, you know, the closest we had to a, to a real gold standard during the 18th century, uh, when currencies hadn't, you know, fully evolved in, into the, the manipulative um, method or form they are today, when they were basically just denominations of gold, you have a, 
you have a global um, unit of account. And so that puts a, puts a, that, that fosters the, the kind of economic behavior that, that we've been talking about. It puts a limit on um, the corruptibility of it. And because it means that, you know, if a, if a, if a country tries to live beyond its means, um, it, it comes up against a hard stop of having gold flow out of the country. Um, and so basically the, uh, the progression of, of fiat money has allowed um, governments to live beyond their means, um, you know, for, for longer than would otherwise be sustainable. And, and basically they're by, by debasing the currency, they are extracting this wealth from their citizens. And unfortunately you get this positive feedback loop, the more wealth that they extract, um, in fact, the more, and the more that they debase their currency, the more the currency actually becomes competitive on a, on a global scale. And so you sort of get this race to the bottom dynamic, um, where it pays for each country to take the, the I guess, immoral route. Um, and so I guess we're hoping that, um, we're hoping that Bitcoin can in some way undo that process. Uh, we know that gold uh, f basically failed um, because of certain, you know, we know it was the hardest money that we had for, for, for millennia, uh, but eventually it got to the point where um, it, it failed because it, it, it's, it's need to be centralized it, it's physical properties that that allowed us to build a pyramid on top of it you know allowed people to manipulate it um and so what it would be interesting to wonder you know we all think that and and robert talks about the fact that there's no free lunch in this universe so so this this pyramid scheme is eventually unsustainable and will will come crashing down um, and you wonder actually if there was no bitcoin what what the outcome would be um, and, and it probably wouldn't be good. Um, so yeah, at least we've sort of, we all feel like we've got, got a lifeboat that, that we can grab onto as we watch the process unfold. Yeah. I mean, the, <clears throat> the day-to-day -day sense that I think many of us share or would share if there was no Bitcoin is a complete 180. I mean, cause we're, I think we're all inquisitive. We're conscientious, we're curious and that, means that we try to understand the, the world in which we live. And if you do that, as we have done, um, the existing world, you think, well, everything we've discussed today, it's, it's actually real. Like everything we've said today, as hyperbolic as it may sound, I mean, we haven't said anything that's not true and real. And that is an extremely sobering realization. And for those people that haven't heard these things before, I implore you to you know, really feel the truth of those things and inquire for yourself and, and, and try to confirm it because that's where we are at as a, you know, a global civilization right now. And if that was all we had, boy, would most of us be tied in knots, right? I mean, we'd be hard to get out of the bed in the morning. Now you'd still, you know, you'd still, many of us before Bitcoin, and at least this was my perspective, there's still beauty in the world there's still amazing landscapes. There's still beautiful relationships, loving relationships you can have. And you would probably just being, you know, somewhat pragmatic, you'd say, okay, I'm going to focus on that, whatever. It all goes to hell. I'm just going to focus on, on, on my little, my little ability to generate joy as it were, but you'd still have running in the back of your mind, this, this sense of doom uh, for the broader world. And I think Bitcoin has just completely turned that on its head and on its head because that's it's the antithesis to what exists today and why that's exciting is because if we're seeing how 
egregious and, and, and oppressive and suppressive and all the other things that the system is today, the opposite of that is uplifting. It's freeing. It's abundant. It's peaceful. It's prosperous. It's et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that is something to be incredibly excited about and to, you know, if you're sufficiently motivated, contribute to bringing about, which is why we're doing this fucking book chat, uh, book club right now. But one of the, um, my favorite concept in this piece, um, and, you know, everything that we discussed, the, the how money manipulation induces slavery and how using, a, you know, a corrupted money, you can't express yourself. And as Guy was saying, you may not even be able to fully, you know, uh, value yourself and, under, and as a result, understand your, yourself and all the other things we discussed. Rob, uh, you know, brings forth this really interesting concept uh, that I'm going to read out because I, like I said, I think it's my favorite part of the piece. And it goes like this. Viewed this way, we have much to be hopeful for in the world as there is finally a perfectly knowable money, a corruption-proof alternative to the completely unethical system of central banking. Bitcoin is honest money freeing the world from the falsehood of fiat currency. In a transcendental sense, Bitcoin may actually be what the ancient alchemists spent centuries pursuing, the incorruptible substance called the lapis philosophorum in archaic texts. That would serve as an antidote, or sorry, that would serve as an antidote to the corruption of the world. Standing at the vanguard of human technological achievement, existing as the only money characterized by a manipulation-proof supply and inspiring earnest transformations in the lives of true believers, perhaps Bitcoin actually is the lapis philosophorum pursued by alchemists for centuries. The incorruptible substance giving rebellion to state tyranny and in doing so, bringing mankind closer to God. Bitcoin is the truth, and by one definition, God is expressed in the truthful speech that rectifies pathological hierarchies. And to finish this off, or this particular passage, like freedom, love and, or sorry, like freedom, love, and truth, God is timeless. I'm not talking about a guy in the sky here. The ancient idea from Genesis is that God is the force that freely confronts the chaos of potential with courage, truth, and love to convert it into good and useful order. Being made in the image of God, we are all sovereign individuals imbued with the logos, a self-generating power responsible for our ability to harmoniously reconfigure the natural world into good and habitable space. Our future is seeded in our imaginations, a reality we call forth by freely exercising the logos in thought, speech, and action. The Logos is the divine spark intrinsic to us all. Realizing that words can only miss the mark of spiritual truth, we can venture to say, God is the anti-entropic principle eternally propagating through all life. To most truthfully embody the divine principles of the Logos individually and more closely approach the timelessness of God collectively, we must triumph against the evil forces that steal our time secretively and constantly. Boom. Amen. Hey, that's my favorite part too, man. <laughs> I mean, come on. That's just, it's incredible. You know, it's, um, well, you guys discuss. I'm going to have a drink and clear my throat. 
Actually, uh, one of the only quotes that I, I listened to my own reading of this, um, again, to uh, uh, refresh myself, but uh, I did type down a quote while I was listening to it. Uh, but the only one that I kept was, I think it's shortly after that, that section, um, was that money is a game played for keeps and it involves the highest stakes imaginable, human freedom. And I think, I think that kind of sums up the whole, the whole concept is that like money is a tool for freedom and freedom is exactly how we figure out our own truth. Like if we're not responsible and control and in control of our lives and our decisions and we don't have the freedom to make those trade-offs and compare one thing to the other to the other with like a, a true a mechanism of reality, something that is expressing truth in the world, um, then we don't have anything. We we can't turn we, we can't meet chaos and find order. Like like all we do we lose our tool to, to, to meet chaos with something real and substantial. And, uh, and in doing so, we lose our lives. Like it's, it's, it's a way to cage our minds, our, our, our meaning in what we're trying to accomplish in the world, our lives and our time for someone else's good, for someone else's to, to bring about someone else's vision of the world instead of our own. Um, and it's, it sucks. Well, <laughs> I guess, I guess actually it's great in, in the Bitcoin sense that we might actually be able to solve it, you know? This, this, um, yeah, his discussion of Bitcoin as sort of like modern alchemy is really interesting, uh, because it's like, you know, if, 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 if the ancient alchemists had, or now that we really have a better understanding of gold's properties and what makes it valuable, it's ironic to think that if alchemists had succeeded in finding some method of converting another substance into gold, they would have destroyed the very property that, that made gold valuable, which is its resistance to that kind of attempt. And then it's interesting to reflect on, on the fact that Bitcoin might be the the goal that they were pursuing all along. And like, it might sound hyperbolic to, to say that Bitcoin is the solution to that, but I think Robert makes this pretty compelling argument and he makes it really well in, um, I think it's in the number zero in Bitcoin where he talks about Bitcoin as, path, as a path dependent discovery. So rather than an invention, it, it's more like a discovery than an invention. It was a one-time thing that happened um, through a series of, of historical um, animal or events that, that can't be repeated. Um, so yeah, it's basically like this discovery of, of, we never thought we'd get digital scarcity. We never thought that would be a thing. Uh, and and in, in the discovery of digital scarcity, we also happened upon absolute scarcity um, as a concept, not just in digital form, but in, but in any form. Um, and so that it's funny in the end may inter may work out to be a much more valuable discovery than than the goal of alchemy which is turning some base substance into gold and so in terms of that the effect that that might have you know the framework that i always like to to put on things is this idea of 
uh, it's like it's like truth versus whatever lies or the, the the economic means versus the political means the social like the, the social power versus the state power like those that want to engage in in free unimpeded exchange to build a civilization versus those who want to want to take uh, away from that um, like I, I do think at, at its heart well that's a very simplistic way of looking at the world but I think it it works uh, and I think you can view Bitcoin as perhaps the most potent tool um, that those who want to engage on the side of good in that in that battle ha- have um, discovered so far. Man, I'm so glad I just heard both of y'all's responses to that because that was one of my favorite parts of of this uh, of this work here. And like my brain did like a completely different path when I was reading this part, specifically when he was talking about um, what Jordan Peterson wrote um, in the book, uh, what was it, Maps and Meaning, um, when he's talking about um, the message of alchemy, is it's, uh, what does he say, the individual reflect, or rejection of tyranny, the voluntary pursuit of the unknown and terrifying, predicated upon faith in an ideal may engender an individual transformation so overwhelming that its equivalent can only be found in the most profound of religious myths. And like, I'm thinking about that in my parallels of uh, going down this Bitcoin rabbit hole and like, um, d- like rediscovering my sovereignty and what truth is. So I was looking at it as more of like a journeyistic, uh, you know, adventure in, um, what truth and reality is right now for me. And um, I'm just really thankful to hear you guys' uh, end of the spectrum as well, I suppose. Well, I think actually there, well, the reason why I think he includes them both is because there's a similar process underlying the two, right? So mm-hmm. like most people grow up or learn about alchemy thinking like, yeah, people trying to make physical gold, right? And that may have been the case in certain instances, but the other alchemy is this, it's, it's taking the chaos of the world or the chaos of you internally and turning it into order and meeting, you know, in terms of the hero's journey, meeting right. that, meeting that with, uh, I'm not sure if I kept the quote, but I think it's like meeting the uncertainty and the chaos of the world with courage, love, and truth, perhaps that may be the third one. Um, right in order to establish order in the world and to bring forth the very, you know, quintessential essence of yourself in order Mm -hmm. to do that. And so that's on the personal level. And and I think that's where we get this hero's journey sort of theme that reemerges in so many different places in which Robert actually addresses in the piece or, or, or refers to, but, you know, on the, on the external from us side of things, I mean, think about it in terms of bringing uh, order forth from chaos, think of the chaos of pure energy and the chaos of mathematics, of numbers, of large numbers, of, of this, and using those two things to, you know, to synthesize order in the form of, you know, what we have and what we know and what we interact with as Bitcoin and how in doing so uh, in a very uh, alchemical process, and I'll go back to what Robert said, we may, it, this may serve as the quote, antidote to the corruption of the world. So bringing, you know, this form of order through chaos that's represent, re- represented in Bitcoin, um, giving us something that 
could be the antidote to corruption in the world. I mean, so I don't think it's exclusively on one scale or another or, mm-hmm. or on one thing or another. I think it's a concept that can be uh, found or applied in, in many different places. And I think that's why he does it in this piece on, on both scales. But um, it's a really far out thing to consider. I mean, if, and we, you know, we're all super jazzed up and we hope all this is true, obviously, right? And so people that aren't as far down the rabbit hole as us or aren't as into this stuff as we are, this may seem like, you know, the woo-woo part of, of the piece. They think we crazy. Yeah, they think we're Fair. crazy, right? <laughs> um, but it's an, int- and, you know, it's an interesting conversation to have. You know, it's an, it, this is an interesting topic to dig into. Like, um, you know, if, if this is something that we have done, and if we have done that, it's a, a little bit of a stealing fire from the gods sort of moment. You know, we've, or, or again, to use kind of Robert's bent on this, is, is becoming more almost godlike uh, in how we're able to uh, interact, to live and interact in the world. And uh, the implications of that are staggering to think about and difficult to think about for our, you know, our previously, um, well, for minds that had grown up and conditioned to a different set of, of, of possibilities to, to consider a world with the introduction of a possibility like that uh, is going to take some time to digest. <laughs> okay. Any other comments on the, on the whole stealing fire from the gods piece? <laughs> no, I think that Karen, your, your take on that about, you know, the, the personal side of the journey, I think is extremely valid. And, and I also really like John, the point you bring up about Bitcoin as this process of transforming entropy, like pure, pure entropy in, in energy, in, in chaotic form into order um, is, is quite profound. And, and this is one of Jordan Peterson's main, I guess, um, point is that in, in this search, the search for truth, the search for order, like what is, what is, the point of of being human or he looks at where where's the place where where a human finds themselves um most like like the search for happiness or a search for sort of completion um or an end result is is always going to be self-defeating and really the place where you need to be is is mediating on that borderline between order and chaos like that is the essentially the human um the, the noble human challenge basically like you've got one foot in a place where you're comfortable where you have tradition order structure and then your other foot is in the unknown in um in, into the chaos and it's, it's, it's always a process. It's always the journey being more uh, fulfilling, important, meaningful, truthful than the end result. And Bitcoin is almost a, you know, a mathematical representation of that same process. Yeah, that's a great point. <clears throat> okay. So last, uh, last couple of questions here, and these are the ones from Rob, right? So this is the ones that he wanted us to uh, dig into a little bit. So the first one is, uh, and this goes way back to the beginning of the piece, but he says, where do we draw the line between technological disruption and immorality? In a way, AgriBeads and Panos producers simply disrupted local currencies through counterfeiting, but a line was crossed at some point on the road to enslavement. Um, I have my take on this, but I'd love to hear each of yours first. (laughs) 
I, that's a tough one. I didn't, I remember that question now um, because like in the context of Bitcoin, like that, that disruption I feel like is solving the problem rather than causing the problem. But in the exact same sense, like let's say we were on a gold standard, Bitcoin may still very well dis disrupt gold. You know, like it's very possible that we could have uh, some form of sound money, but that still wasn't as that still had like more systemic problems than uh, than some new technology like Bitcoin. And the discovery of Bitcoin, the discovery of a new money does, in fact, destroy the old. Um, that's one of those things about money is that it always it, it inherently pushes toward one medium. Um, so. Uh, I don't know, outside of recognizing that that's like definitely an element involved, I might have to think a little bit more on it. <laughs> I, yeah, I agree. I, like, because, you know, it's interesting to then bring Bitcoin into, into this. I thought, thought a fair bit about this question and it's, it's a hard one because, you know, where, where's this line between technological disruption and, and, and immorality? Um, and, you know, it made me reflect on, say, the, the Bitcoin standard where Saifedean talks about um, just the economic process of hard money eventually driving out weaker forms of money. And, and you know, I think Saifedean also brings up the agribeads thing. Um, we've got the panos. Um, there's also like the rye stones where, where these islanders were using this stone and then, and then a European captain came in and, and kind of quarried these stones on a different Island and, and disrupted that system. You've got like wampum shells in North America that were being used as money. And then, then the European settlers eventually figured out how to harvest them um, from the sea and that disrupted that. And so it's hard because you, you can basically rely on the law that, if, if someone can make the money, they'll, they'll make it. Um, is that a moral or not? Uh, I mean, I think we'll all reflect on the, the, the process of the agri beads and say, look, that's not a good, that is an immoral action. But I definitely struggled to find the, the line where just a technological disruption slips into immorality because, um, you know, I think we would all agree that uh, just like Guy was saying, you know, we we even in the, the hardness of Bitcoin as a money, and we, I think we'd all gladly be on the, on the side of a transaction, taking Bitcoin from someone in a modern society who who perhaps doesn't understand that as well as we do, and is willing to take the other side of the trade. Uh, is that is that a moral on our part? Not not necessarily. The only place I could find a, a hard line was. The, the enforcement of a, a monopoly through, through the threat of violence. So, that, uh, so that's another argument to say that what central banks are doing is worse because um, the Europeans didn't go to, go to the um, Africans and say, gun to your head, take, the, take these beads in exchange for your goods. Maybe they, maybe they did, but that's not the analysis Robert's doing. But in fact, the central bank is using the threat of violence to say, you must take this form of money and we'll keep for ourselves the privilege of corrupting that for our own financial benefit. So that was the only place that I could draw a line and modern central banking comes up on the, on the bad side of it. Man, I think Richard just covered that 
way better than I could. I don't have any terrific <laughs> thoughts on this question at all right now. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a it's a real tough one. My the first part of my answer is actually drawing from a quote from the article, which says tools are amoral, meaning they can be used for both good and evil purposes alike. The moral outcome of using a tool is inextricably dependent on the intention of its user. Uh, and that's generally where I fall on this stuff, but it's, it's not really sufficient, you know? And so for an example, if you are, you know, an engineer and you're engineering missiles for a defense contractor, is that moral knowing that it's going to be used to kill people? you know, kill people that haven't been tried in a court of law or whatever, whatever, you know, is, is that a moral act? Is buying the shares or structuring the IPO for said defense contractor, is that moral or immoral? And so it's, it's, a, it's a trick, it's a slippery slope, right? Because you could go through your, your whole life and you could say like, what are the things that I contribute to that at somewhere down, downstream uh, contribute to an action or an outcome that I wouldn't want to be uh, associated with. And it's, it's in the modern world, it's probably hard to avoid those things. I mean, maybe the clothes we're wearing is from cotton fields that, you know, uses slave labor. I don't know, you know, but it's, it's difficult to track this stuff. Um, what I think as far as, you know, to, to narrow it down a little bit is in the case of, like the, the examples Rob uses in the piece of, of the Panos and the Agribeats, the people uh, who were using those things knew, and this goes back to their intent, they knew that they were attempting to cheat the system. They knew that they were attempting to intentionally not playing by the rules. They saw, um, uh, they saw a loophole and they, they tried to take advantage of it. And they probably knew what, you know, the, the really negative outcomes would be. And obviously many directly contributed to it. Um, so that's where I guess I draw the line. And what's interesting with Bitcoin is it, it establishes a set of rules that are inherently, I think, fair and that require your acceptance before you can engage in the system. And so by engaging in that system, I think you're inherently accepting that rule set. Um, and both the system prohibits you from a great deal, if not all immoral means of using it. Um, but I think if you accept those rules and then your intent is to operate within those rules and to, uh, and to you know, act fairly, then I think you probably get uh, you know, a pass on the, the morality um, question. I'm not sure because again, it can be, it can get really tangly and, and, and prickly, but I think it, it almost always comes back to your intent. Like there's going to be many uh, opportunities in your life to take advantage of something, knowing that, you know, some, you, you, you've really got to, someone's really got to lose hard for you to take advantage of this, but it's available to you. So, are, will you or won't you? And, and to be honest, uh, you know, I've been thinking a lot about it lately, even within the Bitcoin space. And there's a ton of great people and I love hanging out with Bitcoiners and stuff, but like, I, I, like social license is not the same as ethical behavior. Obviously, you know, we, we discussed part of that in, in, in this and the, the, the kind of broad social license 
is in large part, as we discussed, a, a manifestation of the type of money and the corruption of the money that people in that system are forced to use. And so I think the, you know, part of the kind of moral corruption of society at large today as a result of that does allow us probably more social license than we otherwise would take um, because, you know, this kind of that group think herd mentality. Um, and I, I, I'd like, I, I'm hoping that in a Bitcoin future, uh, not only do people think, you know, not is this action acceptable by my peers, but is this action ethically and morally acceptable to me? And I, am I accepting and aware of the impacts of my decisions? And am I, am I okay with contributing or not contributing to whatever those things might be? So uh, long-winded answer, but I think it comes back to intent. <laughs> yeah. The second question is, is money actually a form of speech? Should it be protected under free speech laws? I, I absolutely think so. Um, I think it's actually a, a more pure form of speech than speech. Um, uh, in the sense that like, you know, when we're, when we're out in like a social environment, so many people will say what is socially expected. They become, uh, like, like in a, in a lack of courage or just in just the pressure of those around you and in your social group, you will very often say that you value a thing that you don't really care about, but that, you know, like that's part of like the social norm. So you want to make sure that you're not left out. But when you have skin in the game, you'll make the different decision. When, when you have skin in the game and it's your value, it's your life, and uh, it's your work and time that you put behind something, you might not tell your friends about it, but you'll make the decision that you actually believe. Um, and, and because of that, it's a more powerful form of speech and behind it, it has, it has economic power. It's not just a frivolous, cheap opinion that I threw out on a tweet, you know, like it's one thing to just tweet about something. It's another thing entirely to say, I believe this and I stake $500 behind that belief. Um, it's, it's essentially a gamble on every economic speech that you give. Um, and, uh, and because of that, I think it's even more important that it is free because it, it's, it's representative economic truth rather than simply social truth, um, which can be far more ethereal and subjective even than, than the economic. Um, so, uh, but you know, I'm, I'm an anarchist, so I think there shouldn't be government anyway. <laughs> like that's not, it's not a hard sell for me, but, uh, I absolutely believe that, uh, uh, money should be treated as, uh, economic speech and defended under the first amendment. I, uh, oh, I agree. But I think this, the short answer is yes. Um, but I do have a slightly longer answer to this, which is, it's a bit of a soapbox, so forgive me, but, but and, it, and it speaks to Guy's point about, about government. But I think that free speech as a concept is, is actually a bit of a red herring. And it's more, it makes more sense to just talk about property rights. And I think that free speech can be basically subsumed more sensibly under the broader umbrella of property rights. Because like, if, if you're talking about free speech, I, I don't think that concept makes sense unless 
bring property rights into it. Like, okay, I, does someone has a right to, um, to speak and speak their mind, but you don't have the right to come on my property and, um, and say whatever you want. Like you have a right to hire a hall, um, and, and hire and pay an audience to come and then to speak. But the owner of that hall has the equal right to, to, to discriminate against who, um, who he hires to or not, you know, and, and the same goes for a newspaper publisher. Yeah. They, they've all they've got is the right to do things related to physical property. They've got the right to hire a factory. They've got the right to buy the materials and then they can print whatever they want, but they can also exclude that. They're also perfectly within their right to exclude someone from expressing themselves in that newspaper. Like, so not, not everyone has the right to go to a newspaper owner and say, I demand that my speech be published here. Um, and it also solves that paradox, the, the, the yelling fire in a crowded theater paradox. Like, um, does someone have the right to yell out in a, in a theater? And if you can suppress that, is that a violation of free speech? Well, no, it's, there's a contract between a theater attendee and the owner, which is that you enjoy the film, um, without yelling and disrupting. So that's also governed by a contract that defines property rights and the use of property. Um, so th that's sort of my, sort of my spiel on free speech that I think, um, the only place where it becomes murky is on government property on publicly owned property. Um, and then you suddenly, which, you know, if, if you don't think that the concept of government is, is a great solution to our social problems, like guy, guys talking about anarchy, then yeah, now, now you've got a problem. Cause like now who makes the decision? Is it the elected representative that decides who speaks and who, who doesn't? Is it the uh, taxpayers? Is it the, the like majority mob rule? So that's where you get this, this murky area. Um, so I think it makes more sense to look at property rights and mon in that way, money um, and the ability to use whatever money you want and express yourself freely through money is just another um, form of property rights as well. You can extend the same analysis to human rights, for example. Um, so yeah, that's why I like property rights as the, the overarching analysis for all these topics. Oh, I really appreciate that viewpoint a lot. I feel like that's going to be a, like a good perspective to think about and look through. Um, originally, I was basically uh, same as Guy there on that one. And so far as like 100%, I mean, both of you, I guess 100%, you know, money is money is free speech. Definitely. It's, it's, it's a language. It's a way I vote. It's a way I, I uh, spend everything I put my time into, right? Um, yeah, I suppose that's all I really have on that one. I, I don't, I don't have anything to go too far on that one. Yeah, I, I agree with everything that's been said. Um, I, I see. I think in the current climate, kind of what Guy was saying, like, yes, I think it should. And Bitcoin, because it's, you know, basically just, you know, a string of text. Like, I mean, I think it's a pretty easy argument to make. Um, you know, my beef, I think, is similar to Guy's in that um, I don't I don't really think we have rights ever. You know, you have things that you can um, defend and things that you can not defend. And anybody that can overcome your establishment of something that you want to establish, you know, has that power over you. You, you have, so basically we have permissions, not rights. And as long as you can establish, maintain those permissions, then you have whatever that permission is, speech or association or whatever. 
And if you can't, then that permission exists at the mercy of someone who can overwhelm uh, your ability to do that thing that you want to do. Um, so I guess, you know, I, I don't think much more needs to be said on that point, but I want to go back um, to the last question, just, and we'll, we'll close up now, but I want to throw a little, little spanner in the works here. So back to Rob's question about uh, that, you know, the technological disruption and immorality. And we look at the examples used in the piece. We look at agribeads and we look at um, panos. And, you know, I was kind of referring to, uh, you know, modern day, I think actually we might have a, a very good analogy in the so-called altcoins or shitcoins, whatever your language permits. And so I think this is a, a pretty easy analogy to make, but what I'd like to put to you guys is that in the current climate, feeling like, you know, knowing what you feel you know about these things, do you think it's immoral to promote them, sell them, or be involved in the, uh, the doing of either of those two actions, knowing that, yeah, of course, they're for sale and people can buy them, but perhaps similar to those Panos and the Agribeads, that you kind of know that, um, yeah, well, I, actually, I won't say anything further. What do you guys think about that analogy, and what do you think about uh, the, the actual decision of, of doing those actions in today's age with those, uh, those things. It's funny. I've been thinking about the, I've still been thinking about the question about uh, technological disruption and whether or not it would be moral. Um, and that was actually, that analogy is something that I was kind of leaning toward right now when you were talking about um, uh, when you were giving your answer. Uh, the only thing that seemed clear to me was, Richard's point of, well, if there's a monopoly involved, well, then it doesn't matter if, if, if that's what's forcing the use of the money, then obviously that is immoral. But in the other sense, we're comparing it to like agri beads and someone coming over to, you know, a new continent and basically counterfeiting this money or at least having access to a technological uh, innovation that allows them to counterfeit this money or destroys the value of the money. It's, it's a form of fraud, I would say, um, or at least in the, the context of the intent, it's explicitly betting on the fact that the other person will never know that you have broken their money and therefore you can continue to take advantage of it. The technology is not made available to them. The knowledge and the information is not given to them. It is specifically hidden from them. And, and in doing so, they, they get to basically bleed the society for as long as they can keep it a secret that the truth of their value is no longer true. Um, and in that same sense, I don't think it's bad to um, trade altcoins. Like, I don't think you're immoral for doing it. Um, but if you promote it, knowing that it's dog shit, absolutely, you're lying. You're just, you're just lying. You're trying to get someone else to, you're telling them that this is valuable when you know explicitly that it is not. And, uh, you know, like somebody's going to have to, like they're going to have to live with the contradiction of that. And um, that's, that's a form of defrauding them. Like, like, you know it to be a terrible investment. Now, if you're buying shit coins and you're being like, by the way, 
you know, I'm selling these on the open market or whatever, but you know, these, these are ridiculous. I think a bunch of dumbasses are going to buy this from me because of this hype cycle. Um, but I think this is a terrible investment. I'm only just buying it to pump, to, to, uh, you know, ride the pump. Um, uh, well then I don't see how that's immoral. If a whole bunch of other people are doing the exact same thing. Um, I knew people who invested in the BitConnect thing who knew it was a scam and all their friends knew it was a scam and everybody was investing in it being like, I'm going to get out before everybody else does. It's like, everybody knows it's a scam. They're all just investing, hoping to get out first. Um, so let me ask you this guy. Okay. The, the company okay. that produced the, the Panos, I believe was called the Graupara. Some, my pronunciation is probably way off, but that was the company, right? And they monopolized the trade by having everything denominated in the Panos and all their warehousing and everything is the young man who worked in the warehouse of the Graupara company, knowing what was going on, was he complicit in the immoral behavior of the company? Uh, I don't know. See, I see this is something, this is like a moral conflict where I know the decision I would make, but I don't know if I could force that on someone else. Of course you could. You know, I, I don't know if I could judge someone else when no when few or no other options are given to them or something like i know that i could confidently walk away from that but like i hold myself to a higher standard and uh and in the exact same sense i probably have some alternative you know i'm not i don't need to be there to support something like that um but people are usually ignorant you know, like people usually don't know and don't get this stuff. Like I was ignorant of all of this stuff. So you could say that the first how many years of my life were to support an immoral system, something that I consider slavery now. Like, like I think Rob's description of it is right. Um, you know, was I immoral then? Can I judge myself back then for being a part of that? Um, but I, I don't know. The question, I just don't, the, the I don't question was, you're a young man working in the warehouse of the Grau Power Company and you understand the, the process okay, that's underway. Okay, and I understand. Um, so you're a guy, you're just trying to put a roof over your head. Maybe you got a, a young family. You see what the Grau Power Comp Company is doing in, you know, in corrupting the money and the, the downstream effects of that. Do you take the job? No. I wouldn't know. Um, I would, I would have a, I would see what I was doing is bad. Um, uh, it's again, I would be, you know, you know, if I was like stuck in the job or I figured it out after I was in the position, like I would probably be like, well, I should tell these people that we do business with, like, this is actually what's going on. Um, but I would still feel, yeah, that's a no. I think that's immoral. Richard, I, I at least would judge myself for it. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think that, that once again, that um, dividing line that you, or the rubricon is, is this idea of, a, it's a, they, were, they were an enforced monopoly. Um, but I look, I think I, I, the way I approach the question is like defining a difference between morality or personal morality, which is just like, it, it is a subjective thing and everyone might fall at a different point on the line um, and just like, what do you think is a shitty thing to do versus not versus a system of ethics and whether this is the accepted definition of ethics, I don't know. But when I say ethics, I mean like 
what should we as a society legislate, uh, legislate against and, and enforce with the threat of violence? Um, and so I think that those two things often end up in a different spot. Like there's something that you might think is just a shitty thing to do personally, but that doesn't mean that you can employ violence to stop that happening. Um, cause then you start to, to, to go to, uh, you know, in, in the wrong direction yourself. And I think when, when you're talking about these, uh, old coins that they, they can fall under that same category. Like obviously we already, yeah, Guy talked about fraud. We've already got rules and, and laws about fraud and that. And so if you're, if you're knowingly defrauding someone, entering into a contract with them, w- w- using under false premises with false information, yeah, that, that's unethical and, and immoral. But if you're just, yeah, there's nothing wrong with copying open source software um, and genuinely thinking that you're doing something good and promoting that, um, there's, there's, that's not unethical as far as I'm concerned. And I think that comes back to this idea of freedom. Freedom is not the protection against bad shit happening. It's just, um, you know, it's just making sure that rules are applied equally to everyone. And so unfortunately in the same way that we'd all like a free banking system, say um, that would allow banks to fail, um, do the wrong thing. And and unfortunately customers would get burned in that scenario. Um, People who dabble in these alternative coins and get burned, um, lose their money. Well, that's just an example of um, the free market iterating and and honing in on truth. And we think that the truth is Bitcoin. And yeah, unfortunately, that's just the way a free market and freedom works is that individuals sometimes suffer um, in that iterative pursuit of truth. But the important thing is that it's not a, it's not an entrenched, uh, like they're individual errors that are resolved and lead you in the right direction. There's no entrenched deviation um, from that process through some monopoly or, or unethical law. Yeah, I think this yeah. might might get to the what I was referring to earlier by the social license, but you could include the kind of the, the, the law of the land and kind of maybe put it in this these terms that the law of the land is, you know, the rules that uh, someone else is going to hold you accountable to and maybe ethics are the rules that you are going to hold yourself accountable to and perhaps most people defer to the former so that they don't have to construct or confront the latter um but again i think you know i think that the the changes that are going to be inspired by bitcoin uh, and through the process of the change in the money that we've been discussing in this talk i think that shift is going to come back to uh, the individual taking more responsibility for uh, determining what is right and what is wrong and acting in accordance with that. Just that's, that's my hunch, but we'll have to wait and see. Uh, sorry, Corinne, what were you, what were you going to say? No, I'm just, I'm just digging on like the end of what Richard was saying and what you were just saying, John. And I, like, I don't know a ton about altcoins. I don't have a lot of extra time to study all of that. Um, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, Yeah, so like, uh, I have enough time to uh, barely learn as much as I can in a day about Bitcoin and like try to get enough sleep and some exercise and, you know, food, right? (laughs) So um, I do, I do uh, appreciate the idea of the free market and that um, Bitcoin uh, is definitely appearing to be a very long game situation. So I think, um, everything that sucks will get weeded out. Right. And, 
<laughs> I think uh, uh, the people who are dabbling in cryptocurrency um, and, and learning about Bitcoin and playing with altcoins like have the ability to go ahead and, and uh, dive in and learn about those, right? So I don't know, maybe, you know, maybe they're getting duped or, uh, you know, the wool pull, pulled over their eyes or something, I suppose, for altcoins. But um, like, don't we have a responsibility as a consumer to go ahead and like understand what we're uh, going after here or what we're getting involved in? Um, so that's just, that's my, my small take on that. Like I said, I don't have a lot invested at all in altcoins or shit coins, if you will. So. All right, guys, this has been a, a really great discussion. I've got some closing remarks that I'm going to again, pull from the piece, but I want to hand it off to each of you uh, for any closing thoughts first guy. Oh, whoops. Muted. Um, yeah, just, uh, I thought this was a great piece and, uh, it's something I had, uh, gotten into on the show from, uh, numerous different angles and, uh, like, like some of the pieces with Hayek or whatever, where you like get into the concept of like what it means to print money. And I'd always found, I'd always been a little reluctant because it seemed so, uh, it seemed so extreme to call it that, but I kept coming back to, there was no better way to describe it other than slavery. Um, and it's, it's just, it was such a good piece for laying out exactly the, really what I felt like I was missing were the historical parallels that Robert laid out to show just how deeply tied to our, our, our modern concept of slavery, which is ignoring uh, that which we are currently under, which thinks that what we are currently dealing with is different. Um, but to liken, liken it and, and truly weigh its cost against the slavery of old, that which we kind of have a caricature of. Um, and uh, uh, and to, to miss the truth of today, to simply be in, for it to be invisible to us. Um, and I just thought this was such a good piece for, for laying that out. And it's definitely one to read uh, and or listen to a couple of times because it's dense as most of Robert's pieces are. Um, but uh, I guess uh, at the end of the day, uh, I'm an abolitionist. <laughs> I think we should have a free sound money and that is that is why I am in Bitcoin. So uh, I'm Guy Swan, listen to Bitcoin Audible. What's up, <laughs> Richard? Well, I'll just say that you know it's been interesting to watch Robert develop his thesis over these what is it three different articles now. Like he's you know he's really he's really developing a very coherent argument, and I think that the main thread is 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 relating money to time like all these articles <clears throat> hone in on that particular um thesis and i think it is the best way to understand money as a as a as a unit of measurement of of human time um and how it's really time is the only really scarce resource that we have um and so you know stealing time um you know is, is perhaps the most grievous thing you can steal from someone um 
And so it's just been fascinating to, to watch him develop that over, over the three three pieces. Um, yeah, it's been really nice to discuss it. And I'll just say if anyone's listened to this or read all of his articles and, and taken something out of it, um, yeah, maybe think about uh, throw, making him a donation um, so he can keep um, you know, keep producing this kind of work. Same goes for anyone who in the Bitcoin space who, whose content you're uh, you're consuming just uh, that really helps um, you know, helps keep people's morale up and keep them working. Corinne? My turn. Um, yeah, I feel like this was maybe like a pretty heady um, bit of reading for me to get into for my first go at <laughs> unlearning my entire 34 plus years on, on earth here. Um, yeah, maybe. And I am, I am really appreciative of this work um, of Robert and uh, everyone in this space, honestly, like everyone's approachable and knowledgeable and um, I would say humble and you know easy easy to speak with and learn from and um like i'm i'm on a new path here and i'm really excited to learn more in order to gather some other folk you know and help help steer the course for other people if that's what they so choose to do so that's where i am awesome all right um i'm gonna say thank you all for joining the discussion and thank you to robert for this piece and all of his previous great work and what i know is going to be a lot of forthcoming amazing work and a book which i'm extremely anxiously anticipating um and i'm going to finish this with uh three little paragraphs from the piece because that's just the way i want to do this so here we go money is a game played for keeps and it involves the highest stakes imaginable, human freedom. Said simply, currency counterfeiting is slavery. By breaking the central bank dominion over money, Bitcoin is, emerging, is an emerging emancipatory force for a world suffering under fiat bondage. We are all living witnesses to the incineration of institutional falsity by unstoppable, honest money. Bitcoin is a burning star of sincerity engulfing the enforced fiction of fiat currencies everywhere. From the ashes of this phoenix immolation, a society structured on the sound principles, principles of accountability, honor, and integrity can arise. As an implementation of absolutely truthful money, Bitcoin is a luminous beacon that cannot be coerced or concealed. Bitcoin is money without masters, a system governed by rules instead of rulers. By awakening the world from the nightmare of financial slavery, Bitcoin is a dream of freedom coming true. That's where we'll end it. <laughs> See you next time, everybody.